My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Where would we be without collaboration? Well, we'd be lonely, but we'd also be less I mean, just from my perspective, producing this show independently, we couldn't do it without the support of our listeners in terms of spreading the word, patron supporters, our fashion community. As you know, we don't have ads on this show, and that's on purpose. But we do partner with certain brands when it makes sense for a particular episode, and their support is what keeps the whole thing on the road. This week's episode is dear to my heart because it's all about fashion community and its power to change the world and the idea that we are stronger together. Bianca Spender, designer of the eponymous Australian label known for its intriguing and very sophisticated Ethical Clothing Australia accredited collections, that was a mouthful, <laughs> has partnered with me to present this episode, which tells the story of the social outfit. The Social Outfit is a Sydney-based social enterprise and fashion brand that works with refugees and new migrants to provide first Australian jobs in the fashion industry. And you're going to hear their story today from the inimitable Jackie Ruddock, CEO, changemaker and extraordinary dresser. I'm very lucky to have both Jackie and Bianca in my life. They are part of my fashion community. And to see how these two forces of nature have come together to support Fashion Revolution Week makes me happy. So they've just been working on a Fashion Revolution collaboration for David Jones. And actually, can we just take a moment to consider how cool that is, that we're now seeing a major department store support this campaign. A capsule collection of limited edition garments from four Ethical Clothing Australia accredited brands. So along with Bianca Spender, there will be pieces from Nobody Denim, Manning Cartel and Victoria and Woods. So these will be available next week until the 29th of April at custom-built pop-up spaces at David Jones Elizabeth Street in Sydney and Burke Street in Melbourne, as well as online. 
Bianca designed her two pieces using dead stock fabric and she partnered with the social outfit to make them. All the profits go back into the social outfit. So this is a really meaningful collaboration, not just in terms of shining a light on what the social outfit does and getting a broader audience to their work. As Jackie says in this interview, which is so full of wisdom, together more can happen. I love that. If I was going to get a tattoo, (laughs) which I'm not, I don't like tattoos, but if I did, I'd probably get that. Anyway, you can find them on Instagram at The Social Outfit and they have an online store, thesocialoutfit.org. And if you're in Sydney, do go and visit in person. Their shop is at 353 King Street, Newtown. And you can follow Bianca on Instagram at Bianca Spender and shop her collections online at biancaspender.com. And actually, she was just telling me the other day that her Winter 18 collection, which is called, I think, Letters to Nature, was actually inspired design-wise by the steps that Bianca has been taking recently to embed sustainability into every aspect of her business. It's so interesting. I think expect a podcast about that in future. But for now, sit down, relax, and get ready to come with us on a journey that matters. I just know you're going to find this one inspiring and emotional and want to talk about it afterwards. So Jackie and I discuss the challenges and joys of running a social enterprise and how she began, the power of clothes to communicate when perhaps language isn't so easy, our common humanity, And of course, the refugee situation, what it's like to come to a new place and to try to build a new life and how important, how vital community is to that story. Jackie, (laughs) I'm delighted to be here with you today. Do you want to start by just describing where we are? I always wish that listeners could see. Absolutely. So right now, you and I are in our workroom and our studio and our retail shop here in Newtown. So we're surrounded by piles of donated fabrics, by rolls of excess fabrics, by samples, by new clothes that we've just made. And this is the space where the magic happens. And by machines and space for how many people to sew and work in here? So at the moment, we have four sewing technicians who work with us, but behind us is also the school. So we can have at any point, look, it's a busy day for us when we have up to 20 people on site, which we can just manage. So Jackie, what exactly goes on here? What do you do at The Social Outfit? So the social outfit is a fashion label with a difference. It's what we love to call it. And basically we exist because it's an employment and training program working with refugees and new migrants to Australia. It's based on a fairly simple premise, which is that many new migrants and refugees arrive with sewing and tailoring skills and rich histories of tailoring, of tapestry and the like. So we take what is a strength and we use that to help people settle here in Australia. So as we would say for all of us, it helps to put your best foot forward, right? It helps to feel confident about something as you're in a new environment. So we try to use that and then work with people to have new opportunities. And when some of those new migrants and refugees come into this space, they might not have great language skills or any language skills. How, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the other skills that people can learn by being here, doing maybe something they already know how to do? Absolutely. And it's one of the wonderful things about this space is we just talked about that at any one point you could have 20 people. At the same time, since we've started, I've been quite shocked that at times it can actually be quite quiet here. So you're right that there are a range of languages and a lot of 
of people who might start with us might not have a lot of English, but sewing and creating is very, it's physical, and it's And it's touching. its own language, I just thought. Absolutely, absolutely. Ken Doan said that too. Did he? He did. <laughs> We're going to talk about Ken Doan. I always remember that. I love it. Um, so what it means is that you can show and tell, and that's wonderful when you might not be able to have the language for things. And it's also that way that you can, I think, particularly as adult learners, which I think about a lot, you can learn skills over time because they're real in that moment. So you can begin to learn English or particular ways of being in a workplace in Australia by being there at a regular basis and mm. watching it take place. And culture, Absolutely. work culture, which is different in different countries and different exactly, here. Exactly. Where do some of your community members come from? And how do you access them? At last count, we had people from over 30 countries. And not surprisingly, in a complex world that we live in, we get people and people come to us from any points of major conflict in the world. It tends to be around the areas of Southeast Asia, so your Burma, Myanmar area at the moment. Uh, we'll work with a lot of people in the Middle East at the moment, particularly around the Syrian area. And then we work with some communities on the African continent, um, Sudan and Ethiopia, etc. But a vast variety of places. People come to us referred by the big humanitarian services that are in Australia. So the Red Cross Settlement Services International starts. So since we've developed and in June of this year, it's 2018, we'll be four years old. And so what we've really tried to do since opening ourselves is be known as the specialists who work with community around those fashion and sewing skills. So we're relatively small for our size. We, I think we could have a whole lot more people engage with us, but we need to kind of build it up yeah. over time. So we're known as the sewing people and people get referred to us. And you're a registered charity and a social enterprise, is that right? That's right. So at the moment in Australia, social enterprises don't have a different legal structure. So you can decide whatever you want to become. We are an incorporated association. So we're registered first as a charity here in Australia. And that's because social enterprise is quite complex. We exist for the primary purpose of employment and training to our community. So when, really I'm, yeah, mm. when I'm making mm. my decisions, it's about people first. We're going to get into how you set this up and the story of the social outfit mm. a little bit later. But I wanted to just talk about you, Jackie. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wish everyone could see you. Um, I interviewed you for print a little while ago and I asked you to describe your job and you said to me, I'm the no. <laughs> I'm the ringmaster and the cleaner. Uh, <laughs> so what is your job? Uh, uh, you know, I was thinking about it in preparing for this interview and I was thinking about, um, I come from a background working with young people, kind of uh, like a social worker. And I think we talked about us being a social enterprise. In a lot of ways, we behave like a small business. And anyone who's listening would know when you start a small business and when you're a social worker on these things, you do whatever is required. Yeah. So I do whatever is required. I used know. to have a shop and I used to mop yeah. that shop. Absolutely. <laughs> While thinking, this is not what fashion designers do. That's right. You've got to give yourself to it wholeheartedly and you've got to be prepared to try anything that you can. Fortunately, this far along, I now can recognise the many things I'm terrible at doing and how much a community around us makes this and its chance of success higher and higher. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond of mine come together and work collectively. 
But one thing you're not terrible at doing is dressing yourself. <laughs> Again, I wish that listeners could see the vision that is Jackie Ruddock, uh, which is a colourful vision. Hmm. Can we please describe exactly what you're wearing right now at this minute? Sure. Well, I'm wearing, obviously, our clothes that I love and adore. I'm wearing at the moment our silk dress from our latest collection, from Maryland. So this was a program that we did working with young people from Maryland. Um, which is? Which is a suburb in Western Sydney. Um, and it was a, an arts-based project with young people over about six weeks. And so the young people all designed an artwork together, a collage sense of self, etc. And then Jessica, who works with us here, who's a textile designer too, she took aspects of everyone's art and made it onto the print. And all the colours are in the print. And all the colours are in the print. I do like colour. And it's really been interesting. I think our customers respond to it too. I think that people don't necessarily know what this print is about when they first come into the shop. But it's joyful. It is joyful. And yet it's still got a design edge, I think. Oh, for um, sure. That it's a talking point there. You say, what's that? Exactly. There's an amazing experience, I think, for our customers who get to be wearing something and someone responds to them positively and then they get to tell the positive story of our work. It's like a cycle of enjoyment that I think continues. You can't just escape the rest of that question though, Jackie. What else are you wearing? <laughs> oh yes, sorry. And so uh, I love um, leggings, worn them all my life, an 80s girl. Uh, so I'm wearing upcycled sea folly bathing suit lycra as my leggings. Yep. Um, and because we're recording a podcast, I've taken off all my jewellery because oh, otherwise I'll clankle. Yeah, I'm used to it now. Otherwise you'd be hearing my many rings and necklaces smashing against each other. But so. I am seeing your House of Dizzy earrings. Of course. That are giant holographic star strewn heart shaped yes <laughs> 80s fandangles yeah i think it's really an important thing to support other local designers um and particularly obviously for us here at the social outfit one of the ways that we want to do our work is to respect our aboriginal and indigenous history here in australia it's really important i think i'm a migrant myself to acknowledge that so in the house of dizzy designer tell me her story because she's an Indigenous Australian. Yeah, she is. Yeah. So Christy is a designer who's now was based in Sydney and has now moved to Melbourne. And she's amazing. I don't know all of her story, but my understanding is she self-taught herself a lot of her jewellery making. But I think it's really interesting too, because I think Christy and a whole bunch of other designers as well, I hope ourselves are included in that, are examples of, I would say particularly women working together that are interested in creativity as a vehicle for the ways that we engage with political issues, I think, in um, positive and exciting ways and ones that want to reach wider audiences in different modes. Yeah. Also, your glasses. Oh, Dresden's, baby. <laughs> so Dresden's are just down the road and they're in other uh, states of Australia and growing. We love Dresden. So those are upcycled plastic they're almost indestructible and you can pop them like the old watches. Do you remember the watches where women used to pop out and change your colours? You can do exactly the same on Dresden's, which again is a love of, you know, that kind of Jackie, you love 80s things, I hey? do love 80s things. We're going to have to talk about Ken Doan. You mentioned him before. Ken Doan, 80s icon, king of Australian kitsch. Tell us about him. If people haven't heard of Ken, and I will also suggest that if you haven't yet listened to the episode from Series 1 with Linda Jackson, that it's a good companion piece to this episode with Jackie and also to this conversation about Ken because these are iconic Australians who rocked the fashion world in Australia in the 80s. Tell us about Ken and why you have a connection. 
I think that the easiest way to begin is that I migrated to Australia in 1982. I from think, where? Uh, from South Africa. And so I think that part of growing up in Australia and us being a new young migrant family was about like adopting a new culture and seeing the colour and fun of it. So I got given, I have no idea where it is, but I still have the photo, a down under jumper, Kendone, upside down, down under, best jumper ever, rainbow colours. And So what he did though is he used iconic imagery of Australia and transformed it into very vibrant, very, very pop appealing prints and paintings. Absolutely. And he's an artist. Exactly. And I think that's the amazing thing. So the Opera thing. House. And he's been or an artist. the beach. Exactly. Yeah. He's been an artist since he was 40 years old. He's continuing now. And I think people definitely have opinions, but you see someone who's got to live their passion, do it, and you could call it a bunch of things, naive, kitsch, bold, fun. I say good on him. I say good on, on you know, bringing forward a colourful movement that I think also... I don't come from an arts background, but has brought on other ways of recognising our Australian history mm. through art. But the, the interesting thing about the Candone story is that there was a time when people would dismiss him as not a real artist or too kitsch, when in fact he is a brilliant artist and if you look Absolutely. at his work there's a lot of breadth in it. But now people have figured out that actually this was really important stuff about, I don't know, like a visual statement of Australiana, which now we look at it and we go, yeah. Yeah. But and I think at the time some people were like, oh, come on, this man's just a commercial designer, a bit snooty. But now we understand that, no, Ken is a, an icon. <laughs> so that jumper, what did it make you feel like? I think I've always responded to colour. And then uh, obviously... But when, you just loved it. Yeah, I just loved it. And I think then what happened is when I got older, I discovered op shops. And from my teens onwards, all I pretty much wore from there on in were op shop clothing. And because of the popularity of Ken, but this cultural cringe that kind of happened at a point in time... Then what happened is the op shops were filled with amazing candy. They're not now. It costs a fortune. <laughs> I know, but that's because I'm collecting <laughs> it all. And there's a bunch of us. There's a bunch of us who collect it. But no, I mean, I think what it is is that you would get to see this thing that, you know, and we've spoke about, that sometimes people think is waste. You know, they don't want it anymore and they don't see it as something that they want in their lives. But other people love it. And that's the wonderful thing about objects. They can mean different things to each of us. So... As I went on, I was picking up this vintage Candone that was in the op shops. Well, what I'm going to ha have to ask you is about Candone 365. Yes. Because actually it's fair to say that for a time you were a Candone obsessive. Yes. Could I, be still. Yeah, it hasn't really <laughs> gone away. So um, inspired by, and I've actually written about this in Wardrobe Crisis, the little black dress project. That's right. Can you just summarise what that is? The Little Black Dress Project was a project that happened, it would have been, what, 2008, 2009 now, um, and she was an American woman, I believe, who decided to wear a little black dress every day for a year, and she had seven variations of exactly the same dress, and she wore that and upcycled materials every day for a year and started blogging. To and prove that we do not need to have a bazillion million things in our closets in order to look stylish or feel confident. That's right. And, and I that, think she made patterns of that dress available. She did. She, she did. They were open source so you could actually download it for free and then make your own. And it was a political project as well as a fashion and visual one. And a fundraising project. Oh, okay. So she began to raise money for an uh, education charity or set of charities that were in India, which were important to her. And I think 
don't quote me. Yeah. I think she raised over 250 US dollars. I mean, it, it was amazing. And I think. 250 bucks? No, 250,000. <laughs> Sorry. I think she a quarter of she a million. over $2.50. <laughs> There's a K that's in my head that I'm not saying out loud. Um, so you looked at that project and thought? I just thought it was amazing. I thought it was a wonderful way that someone was creative, individually philanthropic, community building. Yeah. Fast forward one entire year <laughs> of Ken. Well, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I think the thing is I've made my career in the not-for-profit sector. I, I feel really passionate and strong about community projects working to strengthen us together. But at the same time, I do like clothes and I do like trying to think about being creative in my own life. And um, I also like to think about how I can be philanthropic. So in 2010, Ken was turning 70 years old. Gosh, was and, he? Yes, he was. And so I very nervously over a period of time thought, what would it be like if I were to pay homage to what? Ken Doan kind of offered as a vision and a bit of fun yeah. um, and 80s dressing and, you know, a bit of frivolity, I think. Uh, what would it be like if I wore a different piece of Ken Doan every day and saw if I could raise money for a charity that I believed in and thought was doing very interesting work? What was the charity? And the charity was The Social Studio, who is now our sister studio based in Melbourne. So again, I mean, I think it's part of my migrant history and the like and interested in clothing. But when a friend, actually, a dear friend said to me, there is this social enterprise in Melbourne that works with new migrants in fashion. I mean, that was it. That was like, that is perfect. What was interesting or what was unexpected was that the more and more over that year that I got to know the social studio and really see the amazing community building that they do, the more I thought that this was an incredible model that uh, had so much opportunity and that could hopefully be replicated in other areas. But you did have a picture taken every single day of yourself and I wrote about it for Sunday Style. <laughs> oh, that's right, you did too. <gasps> Oh, wow, you did too. Because <laughs> it was fabulous. You know, social media can be full of, as we all know, hot girls being hot and it gets quite boring, like very styled and look how gorgeous I am for no reason. Or if you go down the rabbit hole, it can be full of fantastic, authentic storytelling and you can find friends online through Instagram, which is where I found you with this. Yeah. And you, you can actually make amazing connections and build community and change the world. So I do think the dichotomy of our social media culture is interesting. It's not all about feeling bad about yourself or ranking yourself next to Gigi Hidden's thighs. Some of it, if you go down the right route, is fabulous community building and that's what you did. Absolutely. And it's How much money did you raise? So we raised $25,000 for the social studio. Did you? Which was amazing. And yeah. I said to myself at the start, I worked out a little bit of the maths and when I, I rang Grace McQuilton, um, who's the founder of the social studio, and said, look, I want to do this project what do you think about it? I can guarantee I can get you $3,000. Whatever's beyond that, we'll see how it $2. goes. $2.50. Are you lucky? <laughs> That's right. And she, who comes from an arts background and curator, said, let's do it. So, I mean, I think, again, it's that one of those things where there's a real benefit in yes and. What can we do together and see what we can grow? Love. Mm. How did you then translate that experience into setting up the social outfit here? So we, I finished my 365 days of Ken Doan. And, and actually, hang on, when did he find out? He found out at various stages. So obviously at the start, because I think it's really important to oh, tell someone. Oh, so told I told him. him. Quite rightly, uh, I think he went, hmm, <laughs> I'm 
not entirely sure what this is about, but over time, I think once he got to see that also too, that it was about respect. Like I think, you know. He must have loved it. I'd be delighted. Yeah. So that it was about respect and it was about bringing together, hopefully a positive vision of what's possible. Totally got on board. We had the end of 365 days at the art gallery with him and his family. I mean, it was amazing. He painted on me. He What? I know. What, so you had a party? He threw a party for you? He threw a party for us. He, um, His cousin, Christine, is absolute dear, gave us amazing vintage Candone that she'd been collecting so that we could use it and then we raffled that off. We sold it on eBay and then the proceeds went to the social studio. And he so, painted I mean, it was, shirts on you? Yeah, he, yes, he did. <laughs> I love yes, it. Yes, he did. So then, okay, you've got a bit of a platform through this. You've realised that you've found a love for what the social studio is doing in Melbourne at what point do you think I could translate this into a Sydney context right near the end of the Kendone project I was lucky enough to be a keynote speaker at Aurora which is a um, well-known LGBTIQ dinner a good queer party that happens in uh, around late June. And I spoke on the night about doing this work and I was lucky enough because I was one of the speakers to be on the table with the mayor, Clover Moore, and with the then governor, Marie Bashir. And as I was doing uh, my talk wearing a doona that um, someone had made into a beautiful dress for me, which what? was lovely. Ken Don't Doona, of course, made into a beautiful Clever. dress. Not with the down. No, not with the down in. Not with the down. I was like, oh, Victor and Rolf. <laughs> and very hot. Not quite couture lengths. My partner heard... Uh, Can I just say for listeners outside of Australia, a doona is a duvet. A duvet. <laughs> uh, my partner heard uh, the governor and the... Um, Mayor turned to one another and said, well, if Melbourne has this, why doesn't Sydney? And then obviously my partner told me that at the end of the night. And I had never done this project for this reason. This, you know, it's easy when you tell a story afterwards to make it seem like it was a logical step. None of it was logical. It's life. But I think what happened was is that we just, there were so many people involved and I believe very deeply in this and I've made my career doing these kinds of things. So I spoke to some very dear allies and said to them, what do you think if we were to try and do this? The social studio was on board, everyone was on board. So To backtrack, you've said you spent your career working in similar areas and I suppose you're talking about in the charitable sphere. And That's you, right. um, Did you train to be a teacher? I trained to be a teacher but then I went and started working. So I never entered the education system. I, I would say I did adult education. So I worked with homeless young people, people at risk. So instead of being a formal teacher in a secondary school, I kind of went into youth work and that kind of stuff. So more social education. So when you then thought, okay, there's the kernel of an idea here that I could potentially get off the ground, Mm. surely one of the hardest things is to raise the funds. Yes, it is. (laughs) How did you go about that? And was it about just people saying this is such a great idea? Did people come on board quite easily or? No, it it was quite a long journey actually. It took us two and a half years pretty much from the time that we discussed whether we'd want to look at opening it to opening the doors. And I guess the point is when you're living those two and a half years, that was pretty tricky because I think one of the interesting experiences for me was I obviously by this stage had spent quite a lot of time and believed fully in it. That process of uh, getting people on board, of encouraging them and arguing in a positive way about why something will work is hard work Mm. Um, and quite rightly too. Mm. You know, one of the things I've learned, there's no lack of ideas in the world. You have to have an idea and then you clearly have to explain to people how you are going to make this work. And you have to have a really unwavering belief, <laughs> even when it does dip and dive inside you, you have Ooh. to express that belief yeah. to people 
continuously. Well, and I've and worked I do out, think we should yeah. talk about hard because yeah. people often think yeah. that these things just happen. Yeah. And they really don't, do they? No, and actually I've just worked out that the unwavering doubt doesn't go away. You just no. sit that and then keep going. And actually know. that's another thing we should acknowledge because... I was being probably a bit disingenuous there saying that you always have to believe in yourself because you never can. Sometimes you just think this is impossible, I can't do it. But I think what I meant was that you can't admit that to the people that you're trying to bring on board with you. You know, you've got to just, it takes some guts and gumption and some blagging, doesn't it, to get things off the ground. You've got to do it. And it, it's hard work. And I think I'm probably talking about myself and my podcast right now. But it is. It doesn't just happen. Nothing does. No businesses just happen, even the ones that seem effortless Mm. and seem wonderfully successful. Mm. I think for me, one of the great parts about this and one thing that hopefully I speak passionately about because I believe in it is those are the moments when uh, having a community around you is the most important thing. There is no way the social outfit story is not my story. It is a story of many, many people who have made this happen. And at every step along the way, there have been absolute allies from a diversity of backgrounds, which is what's so amazing. And by diversity, I well, mean... it's a movement. You're making absolutely. a movement. It isn't the Jackie Ruddock show. This is, no. like, the clue is in the name. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, again, that's one of those things where one of the amazing parts about this is to watch when I only have a certain amount of skills, but together, the amount of skills that... It's, it's like together more can happen. And so when people bring their individual skills and you bring that into a cauldron, it's phenomenal what can happen. So what did you then sort of seek to bring in in terms of skill sets? Sure. So obviously the first one is to say, I can't sew. (laughs) And I don't come from a fashion background. And I have now very much worked out I'm terrible at things like marketing and social media. Not to say, I mean, I'll give it a go. And I love to give things a go. But when you see people who are trained, and when you see people who uh, know what they're doing, it's wonderful, because they can get your message better across, you know, they can explain things. Philanthropy, raising money is really important you know the social outfit in some ways is a complicated business we're like a small business we're like a charity we need to ensure that we fundraise for our future vision all of those things require different skill sets along the way so at every stage um, having people involved I think the other really important thing to say is that of course I myself don't come from a refugee background and it's really important for me in community building to make sure that At all levels, as much as possible, I'm hearing from the direct experience of people so that we are creating something that respects, builds and works with the skills of a community that we are here to seek to serve. So how do you do it in terms of team building? And obviously you have some great sewing mentors and teachers and pattern makers. And can you talk to me a little bit about the practicality of making these clothes? Absolutely. So we have an amazing team. So currently our team is 11 people. I have four sewing technicians from community and I have four retail staff members. Those are positions that we can work particularly with young people from community, young women, which is great. And then that's eight. So then the other three people are myself, 
Joe, who's our manufacturing manager and sewing trainer. And Joe comes with an amazing background in as much as that she spent 12 years in the fashion industry here in Australia. So work- Zimmerman did she work for? She worked for Zimmerman, she worked for Running Bear, she worked there's a lot of all yeah. I mean the the list is really long. And what's amazing, which you would know much better than me, Claire, but in some ways it's quite a small industry. So everyone knows everyone. So Joe will go somewhere when we went to Romance was Boom for the first time. And she knew half of the staff there straight away. And then I also have Jess on our team and Jess runs all of our retail and sales and marketing. And Jess herself is a textile designer so that she's able to, when we do our community projects like the Marylands project and we've done a Fairfield print with young people in Fairfield, so Jess is able to work with those young people through a creative process and then turn it into a print ready for design. And they, those two would just be an example. You know, I have a board. We have a board of seven members, all who have amazing skill sets from kind of like finance to design. You mentioned before Romance was born and also bringing designers into the community is key to what you do here and I know this through donations. So even now I'm looking at fabric here that's been donated by fashion designers in Australia and I know that Romance was born have contributed Carla Zampatti, Bianca Spender... Ginger and Smart. Ginger and Smart have provided stuff. Sea Folly's provided stuff. Rittenhouse has provided stuff. Over 28 uh, fashion designers and industry players have supported us. And so what this is, is dead stock. So it's fantastic because it's closing the loop. So you've got community building through design so that people get excited about the project and also designers can come in and help and give advice and even if it's informally talk to people here and see what you're doing it's ace but then it's a war on waste which I love and I actually once gave you some fabric a little bit but it is good to think about that side of it as well because it's quite holistic isn't it it's just it's a fab model and it's so much fun you know it's one of the interesting things in so many ways maybe 50-50, we behave like a fashion label. And then in other ways, we don't do anything like that. So in a lot of ways, we see donated fabrics and then we look at it and say, what could we make, you know? And out of your fabric, Claire, we were able to make those beautiful purses match with the Marylands print and also jackets. And I, I think, again, that's that thing about there's the ethos of problem solving, creativity, letting community voices come together to work out what's possible. But all labels should run like this. I actually wrote, when you were speaking then, I thought I wrote a note here and I'm going to read it out. So from a previous interview where I was speaking to you about how you worked here, you said everyone is on a permanent part-time contract with set hours so they're not paid per garment and that's really key. But then you said we're first and foremost about providing employment and education. It's about what can we achieve together today and that's just what you said. Yeah. But it's interesting because I think in the broader fashion world, of course, that's how the fashion system works. We think about collections and we're pre-planning exactly how things are going to look and what time we're going to release them. You're freed from that. You can just say, this is what we've got to work with. What can we make that's beautiful today? What can we learn today? What can we achieve today? It's amazing. And I, it must I, be freeing. I think... Or is it hard? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's limiting. <laughs> Look, it's probably both at both times. You know, I'm thinking particularly of the Australian stylist, Peter Simon Phillips, who's come on board and has been such a key ally of ours. Peter has taught us so much. And there's also some things that make a lot of sense, which is you can't confuse customers. Women who want to support us, there's certain ways that we're used to buying our clothes. So I think as we've developed over time, people have been able to help us refine our product and refine what we're doing so that it can make sense to as wide Mm. an audience as possible. And that's really important. So are you trying to look at seasons? So we work on collections now. And again, you would know this much better than me. My sense is a 
human sometimes is that collections used to be sort of two, then turned into four, then turned into 52. Crazy. (laughs) So in some ways we do a little bit of both, which is to say that we do two major collections a year. And that's a really great way, I think, to tell a story. But they are more narrative driven than saying, here is spring. No, exactly. I mean, they are around seasons because, of course, that's a thing. But absolutely, there is a spring, summer and a winter, autumn, but they are around narrative. So we'll get to do another project with young people this year and that's a big focus of our work and hopefully work with more Australian designers. So that will tell a story over that. And yet, at the same time, because we make literally here and sell here from Newtown and online, then between that we can see what we get given and we can make iterations. So, you know, one of the iterations that we've got in the moment, which has been so exciting and I love, has been that not only did Romance Was Born give us a print with Linda Jackson, which was phenomenal, but then they moved their studios and they were able to give us tiny pieces of fabric from their collections and beautiful pieces that they can no longer use and that we can turn into products now that we can sell. And, and so scraps that you scraps couldn't use commercially that's in right, you couldn't obvious use. context, Absolutely. but you can. So I can make beautiful folded purses. I can make clutches. We've just made our patchwork top. You know, it's 100%. Romance was born silk and each one tells an individual story. So there's no one else who's got that same one. Mm. It's saved from landfill. And I think also too, watching so many fashion designers who really care where their stuff goes. It's complicated. When you create stuff, it's hard to work out what to do with your waste. And Anna from Romance Was Born was holding onto this fabric, waiting, I think, for a right home for it to go to. And I feel very lucky that it was the home that comes to us and it helps generate our work. It's really interesting hearing you say that because I think there can be a perception from the outside looking in that fashion is a profligate waster and no one cares. And, of course, there are issues around big fashion and shocking waste. We know that. But I've never met a small designer who didn't think very deeply about what they were going to do with excess stock. No one wants to carry it and no one wants to have fabric sitting around gathering dust in the corner of the room it's just that our system is not set up to easily find avenues for which to pass that on but I think everyone's trying absolutely Absolutely. and I think thankfully thanks to podcasts like this and the Mm. range of other things to the movement that is happening to fashion revolution and the like so many more people are asking it which is amazing you know I know that not every label can do it I get that but there is a wonderful moment where customers come in who don't know what we do and we say we make the clothes on site and there is this moment like what you mean I can actually watch my clothing getting made and we're getting more and more of that which is fantastic but you know for decades and decades we didn't see where that was happening anymore and I think, again, I think there are some human characteristics. We like to know how, you know, our curious sides are interested in garment construction, are interested in, well, can I have a little bit more length? Of course you can have length. That's very easy for us to do here. So I think also what happens is it creates a closer bond with our customers. Our customers meet our community. And just over time, what you're doing is bringing us closer together to have new conversations and see what we can do together. Mm, Love. Do you let people come and look? I mean, how does that, is that disruptive? If someone comes into the shop and says, I'd love to see how you work, you can't just let everyone out the back. (laughs) No, 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 we can't. So um, we've deliberately built the space so that customers who come in can see and look into the back. Obviously, there's a thing about worker safety and literally customer safety too, because they are machines and sharp scissors and the like. So no, we can't let people into the back. But as you know, too, we do events and we do opportunities where people can come. We have groups come through here, talk about our work. So where we can, we like to open 
open up the space and let people see it. It's that thing about the balance between being able to do our work that we're here to do and then also try and show it so that people get a sense of it. Mm. But even the the hole that we have that (laughs) goes from the shop and into the workroom, it's a nice vista that allows people, I think, to just be able to watch, you know. Well, actually, if because people can't see it, it's a bit like when you go into a fantastic kitchen and you can see the chefs at work. Exactly. It's like that. Yeah. But it's not intrusive because you can get away from it around this corner. But it is, it's a window on what happens. That's right. That's right. Literally. (laughs) Literally a window on what happens. In terms of what happens, I know that you're not able to share with us stories of individual people who work with you just for privacy reasons. But I wonder if you might just like to speak a little bit to the experience of some of the refugees and new migrants that you work with in terms of maybe they've come from war or they've come from trauma or they've come, I don't know. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience more generally might be? So one of the things that I've learned as a part of this process is to say that becoming and being a refugee is an experience that happens in a moment in time over a lifetime. So at one point, you're a person and your life is occurring. And through events that you have no control over, all of a sudden, it can change. And that process where you then have to flee and you have to change, therefore gives you this label of being a refugee. And so what it means is that the experience for every individual person is really quite different. You can be a person who has to flee their country, who have never had access to an education in your own language, let alone then now you come to Australia and you're supposed to be learning English. Um, It could be that you've had to be in a refugee camp for up to decades in some situations. It can also be the thing that you were a small business owner, you were running stuff, one day you wake up, and your country is now in war. So the experiences are incredibly diverse. Clearly, no one leaves. No one would uproot their lives if they didn't have to. And I think that's the thing is to see the strength of people who arrive. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Obviously, it makes me emotional. Um, and just mm. I think that thing that people want to do where um, there is an amazing amount of perseverance and hope. When you haven't experienced something firsthand, it can be hard to feel connected to it and to understand that experience, you know, especially if you've never met anyone who's been through this. And yet that isn't a good enough excuse for the way in which I think some policy in Australia is so cold around the refugee condition or experience and also culturally the way we're not having enough of these conversations about empathy and about trying to understand the experience of basically our fellow human beings Mm. and we can be harsh Mm. about refugees and about Mm. migration in Australia and most of us are actually immigrants which Mm. seems absurd and something we often forget. What do you think about that, where we're at politically with the refugee and immigration question in Australia? I know it's a big one but just maybe if you can speak to it for the work that you do here. I think I would say that what's been interesting for me is to see two ends of the spectrum. So the one end of the spectrum is that in many ways what we're doing is we're creating an arbitrary distance. We want to put people in a situation where we don't have to look at it and we can knowingly pretend that a crisis is not occurring or one that they wish to control, I think, in a way that 
is clearly at detriment to people. Now, these are complex issues. I don't take that lightly. You know, there are a lot of nuance in this about how we work with what is a humanitarian crisis across the world at present. Well, more people on the move than any other time in human absolutely, history. Absolutely, absolutely. But imagining that we as Australia are separate from that, I think because is... Because of distance. Because of distance and because it's we're It's almost a privilege island. to be able to think to ourselves, we've been getting away with it, haven't we? Because in Europe, you can't get away from it because you can see that everywhere you look, there are people in trouble on your beaches and doorsteps. And history will tell us, history does tell us that it is going to be us at some point. Cycles of human nature means there are times when we need help too. And I think on a human to human level, what we want to try and do is find the ways that we can work together to create solutions that do as little harm as possible. So on the other side of the spectrum, then of course you get what is our community and our customers and our supporters. You know, and one long-term supporter of ours said, I wake up each day and I hear the news and I feel so powerless and I'm not sure how to act. And then I found out about the social outfit and it is a way I can take action in a positive way. I don't often talk yeah. about political issues. Firstly, I, as the person that I am, I, I want to be careful what I say yeah. because I think it's really easy to have an opinion. I think it's harder sometimes to take action. Yeah. So I like to take action in the ways that I think that I can have best yeah. effect. And in the process of doing, you're amazed what you learn and you're amazed, you know, what the experience teaches us. You know, uh, I know that there's many things I need to learn over this journey. I know that there's, you know, we have huge challenges ahead of us. So that's, it's being open to it. And I think being open to know that you don't know everything, but that the values aren't negotiable. And those values are about community and care and mutual respect and a creative vision. Can we finish on one thing, which is what's the power of fashion? What's the power of fashion? Well, we know that humans every day wear clothes and I think that there is a I think some social movements don't have to be with a huge bang I think that they happen over time and a bit like we said before it's sometimes only when you look back that you think wow this is how it tracked over time and as someone who wants to think about the longer vision of things I think that fashion has the ability I mean, I love creativity. I mean, I think what creative pursuits can mean to humans is so important. And so for me, there's a link that between those two that says fashion at its best can show a vision for a creative life where humans can work together for mutual benefit. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie Ruddock. Oh. And the social outfit. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and, and thank you to your listeners Yay. because it's people listening to this that's going to make the difference. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. 
Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. 